0: This is Story Institute's Rambling Verser podcast, episode thirty-six. Choices. Well, hello there, and welcome to Story Institute's Rambling Verser podcast. I am your host, John Murray the and this week we're going to be talking about choices. And just as uh, choices are present in everyday life, and we are presented with them in every fashion from work to what are we going to eat for lunch to what are we going to eat for dinner, uh, choices are all around us. And choices have to be a part of your storyline, whether you're writing a poem or whether you're composing a short story or a novel. So as we delve into the world of choices today, uh, we're going to go through our, our back to our former uh, format where we're going to talk about a, a quote of the week, a poem, and a short story. That quote of the week is from Frank Lloyd Wright. and The thing always happens that you really believe in, and the belief in a thing makes it happen. So where does this quote fit in with the topic of choices this week? Well, you know, really it's about believing something is going to happen. And uh, that's how sometimes the choice that we make seems more uh, plausible, more palatable for us uh, when the uh, the ramifications or the pleasure uh, of the, the the final solution comes into play. The poem for the week really delves into thinking about the the impact uh, of our choices, and it's it's kind of short, but it's also also pretty intense if we take a look at it and uh, we may be able to criticize the, the character within the, the, the poem itself, but if we stop and think about this character's logic, it may make a little bit more sense. And then for those of us who really love animals, it may set us back a, a little bit more, but it was a choice that the main subject of the poem Uh, had to endure so let's go ahead and get started with traveling through the dark by william stafford traveling through the dark i found a deer dead on the edge of the wilson river road it is usually best to roll them into the canyon that road is narrow to swerve might make more dead by the glow of the tall light i stumbled back out of the car and stood by the heap. a doe a recent killing she had stiffened already almost cold i dragged her off she was large in the belly my fingers touching her side brought me to the reason her side was warm her fawn lay there waiting alive still never to be born beside that mountain road i hesitated the car aimed ahead its lowered parking lights under the hood purred the steady engine i stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red around a group i could hear the wilderness listen i thought hard for us all i only swerving then pushed her over the edge into the river so in this poem, the the poet here really outlines what the choice was right at the very beginning. However, through a couple of the stanzas, you have hope that something else good would happen out of it. Uh, maybe a new life would be born. The line in there about... I stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red Around a group I could hear the wilderness listen everyone is watching and judging the decision that this this individual makes. And in the end, he ends up doing what he thought to be right in the first place, which was pushing that deer over the edge to save other lives. Uh, the interesting part for me is that I, when I first read it, I was expecting a life to be saved. Was the, the doe um, yet to be born? But it was clear that that was never going to happen, uh, so the decision was to save other lives so that there was no sw- other swerving involved. Our featured poetry writing prompt for this week is is actually to either rethink this poem, rewrite this poem by William Stafford, uh, indicating a little different twist at the beginning to where you're still outlining what the, the main voice it, that, that you hear, what the decision will be, and how, how he or she fulfills that obligation at the end. Or perhaps, choose another topic altogether, uh, whether it's it's the choice that you make on your, your destination to work, or your destination to the grocery store, and, and uh, exactly what happens at the end. So moving right along to our short story of the week. It's entitled Love is a Fallacy, and it's by Max Shulman. It actually was a short story I remember reading in high school. The story itself deals with with knowledge in general, but it's also the choices we make when we have that knowledge. Sometimes knowledge is good for individuals to, to use, uh, and it's also good for characters to use throughout a story. But too much knowledge can be used to our detriment at times whether as individuals or from a storyline pr- perspective. We don't want to give a character too much knowledge of what may or may not happen yet, um, unless we're using that divine, that disembodied voice uh, to tell the story. Uh, but if a character has too much knowledge, uh, then then the power we're, we're giving that, that, that character uh, may actually contradict or counteract some of the other elements within the story. So I'm going to go ahead and read probably most of, uh, of this, this short story here, but you can also find it either within the show notes or on the website. Uh, and it's called, again, Love is a Fallacy by Max Shulman. Cool as I and logical, keen, calculating, perspicacious, acute, and astute. I was all of these. My brain was as powerful as a dynamo, precise as a chemist's scales, and as penetrating as a scalpel. And think of it, I, only 18, It is not often that one so young has such a giant intellect. Take, for example, Petey Bellows, my roommate at the university. Same age, same background, but dumb as an ox. A nice enough fellow, you understand, but nothing upstairs. Emotional type. Understandable. Impressionable. Worst of all, a faddist. Fads, I submit, are the very negation of reason. To be swept up in every new craze that comes along. To surrender oneself to idiocy just because everyone else is doing it. This, to me, is the acme of mindlessness. Not, however, to Petey. Okay, so to interrupt the the flow here, it's interesting that that the the main character here um, has such a a view of himself, but uh, you'll get how the rest of the story is going to go. One afternoon, I found Petey lying on his bed with an expression of such distress on his face that I immediately diagnosed appendicitis. Don't move, I said. Don't take a laxative. I'll get a doctor. "'Raccoon,' he mumbled thickly. "'Raccoon,' I said, pausing in my flight. "'I want a raccoon coat,' he wailed. "'I perceived that his trouble was not physical but mental. "'Why do you want a raccoon coat?' "'I should have known,' it," he cried, pounding his temples. "'I should have known they'd come back when the Charleston came back. "'Like a fool, I spent all my money for textbooks, "'and now I can't get a raccoon coat.' "'Can you mean,' I said incredulously, "'that people are actually wearing raccoon coats again? "'All the big men in campus are wearing them.' "'Where have you been?' "'In the library,' I said, "'naming a place not frequented by big men on campus.' "'He leaped from the bed and paced the room. "'I've got to have a raccoon coat,' he said passionately. "'I've got to.' "'P.D., why? "'Look at it rationally. "'Raccoon coats are unsanitary. "'They shed. "'They smell bad. "'They weigh too much. "'They're unsightly. "'They... "'You don't understand,' he interrupted impatiently. "'It's the thing to do. "'Don't you want to be in the swim?' "'No,' I said truthfully.' "'Well, I do,' he declared. "'I'd get anything for a raccoon coat. "'Anything.' "'My brain, that precision instrument, slipped into high gear. "'Anything?' I asked, looking at him narrowly. "'Anything,' he affirmed in ringing tones. So obviously, you can tell that the storyline itself is not uh, necessarily modern. It's not uh, within you know, the last 20, 30 years or so. Um, and just just by some of the the word choice, swimmingly, big men on campus, uh, those type of things, uh, they're uh, they're a little bit a little bit dated, but. Uh, we can identify you know it's if if we don't have an ipod or we don't have an ipad or if we don't have this we're not necessarily within the in crowd you know if we're not on facebook it's not this so you you know the whatever the storyline is it's it's what would i do to get it and Petey is willing to do just about anything for the coat and uh and our narrator here is is coming up with a cunning plan to kind of get uh, what he would like out of Petey uh, so that uh, Petey can have his raccoon coat. I stroked my chin thoroughly. It so happened I knew where to get my hands on a raccoon coat. My father had had one in his undergraduate days and now laying a trunk in the attic back home. It also happened that Petey has something I wanted. He didn't have it exactly, but at least he had first rights on it. I referred to his girl, Polly Espy. I had long coveted Polly Espy. Let me emphasize that my desire for this young woman was not emotional in nature. She was, to be sure, a girl who excited the emotions. But I was not one to let my heart rule my head. I wanted Polly for a surely calculated, entirely cerebral reason. I was a freshman in law school. In a few years, I would be out in practice. I was well aware of the importance of the right kind of wife in furthering a lawyer's career the successful lawyers i had observed were almost without exception married to beautiful gracious intelligent women. with one admission polly fitted those specifications perfectly beautiful she was she was not yet of pinup proportions but i felt that the time would supply the lack she already had the makings gracious she was by gracious i mean full of gracious she had an erectness of carriage, an ease of bearing, a poise that clearly indicated the best of breeding. At table, her manners were exquisite. I had seen her at the cozy campus corner, eating the specialty of the house, a sandwich that contained scraps of pot roast gravy, chopped nuts, and a dipper of sauerkraut, without even getting her fingers moist. Intelligent, she was not. In fact, she veered in the opposite direction, but I believe that under my guidance, she would smarten up. At any rate, it was worth a try. "'It is, after all, easier to make a beautiful dumb girl smart "'than to make an ugly smart girl beautiful.' Petey, I said. "'Are you in love with Polly Espy?' "'I think she's a king kid,' he replied. "'But I don't know if you'd call it love. Why?' "'Do you,' I asked, "'have any kind of formal arrangement with her? "'I mean, are you going steady or anything like that?' "'No, we see each other quite a bit, "'but we both have other dates. Why?' "'Is there,' I asked, "'any other man for whom she has a particular fondness?' "'Not that I know of. Why?' "'I nodded with satisfaction. "'In other words, if you were out of the picture, the field would be open. Is that right?' "'I guess so. What are you getting at?' "'Nothing, nothing,' I said initially, and took my suitcase out of the closet. "'Where are you going?' asked Petey. "'Home for the weekend.' "'I threw a few things into the bag. "'Listen,' he said, clutching my arm eagerly. "'While you're home, you couldn't get some money from your old man, could you, "'and lend it to me so I can buy a raccoon coat?' I may do better than that, I said with a mysterious wink and closed my bag and left. Okay, so the interesting part here is, is that, um, again, the choices are this individual is, is looking to use his intellect to, to connect with a young lady. And he's doing it because it helps improve his stature in life. Uh, sometimes we make decisions that may not be as cunning or as blatant as the narrator, as uh, decisions are. But this shows you what what people are capable of. You know, it's stories reflect life, and you know from the stories I've I've heard from from my relatives. Uh, and seeing myself, this does happen in school, where, you know, you, especially in college, you try to use some other aspect to to to, to get the date, to get uh, to get a grade, to get uh, to get a job, those type of things. So the narrator is not far off into things that we can identify with, and uh, Petey is uh, not necessarily suspecting himself what's going to happen. Look, I said to Petey when I got back Monday morning. I threw open a suitcase and revealed a huge, hairy, gammy object that my father had worn in his Stutz bear coat in 1925. Holy Toledo, said Petey reverently. He plunged his hands through the raccoon coat and then his face. Holy Toledo, he repeated 15 or 20 times. Would you like it, I asked. Oh, yes, he cried, clenching the greasy pelt to him. Then a canny look came into his eyes. What do you want for it? "'Your girl,' I said, mincing no words. "'Polly?' he said in a horrified whisper. "'You want Polly?' "'That's right.' "'He flung the coat from him. "'Never,' he said stoutly. "'I shrugged. "'Okay, if you don't want to be in the swim, I guess it's your business.' "'I sat down in a chair and pretended to read a book, "'but out of the corner of my eye I kept watching Petey. "'He was a torn man. First, he looked at the coat with an expression of a waif at a bakery window.' Then he turned away and set his jaw resolutely. Then he looked back at the coat, with even more longing in his face. Then he turned away, with not so much resolution this time. Back and forth his head swerved, desire desire waxing, resolution waning. Finally, he didn't turn away at all. He just stood and stared with mad lust at the coat. It isn't as though I was in love with Polly, he said thickly. Or going steady or anything like that. That's right, I murmured. What's Polly to me, or... "'Or me to Polly?' "'Not a thing,' I said. "'It's just a casual kick, just a few laughs, that's all.' "'Try on the coat,' I said I. "'He complied. "'The coat bunched over his ears "'and dropped all the way down to his shoe-tops. "'He looked like a mound of dead raccoons. "'Fits fine,' he said happily. "'I rose from my chair. "'Is it a deal?' I asked, extending my hand. "'He swallowed. "'It's a deal,' he said and shook my hand. "'I had my first date with Polly the following evening.' This was the nature of a survey. I wanted to find out just how much work I had to get her mind up to the standard I required. I took her first to dinner. Gee, that was a delicious dinner, she said as we left the restaurant. Then I took her to a movie. Gee, that was a Marvy movie, she said as we left the theater. And then I took her home. Gee, I had a sensuous time, she said as she bade me good night. I went back to my room with a heavy heart. I had gravely underestimated the size of my task. This girl's lack of information was terrifying, nor would it be enough merely to supply her with information. First she had to be taught to think. This loomed as a project of no small dimensions, and at first I was tempted to give her back to Petey. But then I got to thinking about her abundant physical charms, and about the way she entered a room, and the way she handled the knife and fork, and decided to make an effort. So I'm just a little concerned for the, the narrator here. He's, he's basing his relationship and his, his possible future with, with a girl based off of how she handles a knife and fork and uh, um, not much else. But uh, um, I think you know, more of this will come out better in the poem if we were to take a look at how she enters the room. And, and what she does uh, what she does to, to really connect with, with this individual. The point of this short story, however, is not necessarily that romantic connection, but we'll read on and find out a little bit more. I went about it, as in all things, systematically. I gave her a course in logic. It happened that I, as a law student, was taking a course in logic myself. So I had all the, the facts at my fingertips. Paula said to her when I picked her up on our next date, "Tonight we're going to go over to the Knoll and talk." "Ooh, terrific," she replied. "One thing I will say for this girl, you will go far to find another so agreeable." We went to the Knoll, the campus trysting place, and we sat down under an old oak, and she looked at me expectantly. "What are we going to talk about?" she asked. "Logic." She thought this over for a minute and decided she liked it. "Magnif," she said. "Logic," I said, clearing my throat. <coughs> Is the essence of thinking. Before we can think correctly, we must first learn to recognize the common fallacies of logic. These we will take up tonight. Wow, Dow! she cried, clapping her hands delightedly. I winced but went bravely on. First, let us examine the fallacy called dicto simpliciter. By all means, she urged, batting her eyelashes eagerly. Dicto simpliciter means an argument based on an unqualified generalization. For example, exercise is good. Therefore, everybody should exercise. I agree, said Polly earnestly. I mean, exercise is wonderful. I mean, it builds the body and everything. Polly, I said gently, the argument is a fallacy. Exercise is good in an unqualified generalization. For instance, if you have a heart disease, exercise is bad, not good. Many people are ordered by their doctors not to exercise. You must qualify the generalization. You must say exercise is usually good, or exercise is good for most people. Otherwise, you have committed a dicto simpliciter. Do you see? No, she confessed. But this is Marvie. Do more. Do more. It would be better if you stopped tugging at my sleeve, I told her. And when she she desisted, I continued. Next, we will take up the fallacy called hasty generalization. Listen carefully. You can't speak French. PD Bellows can't speak French. I must therefore conclude that nobody at the University of Minnesota can speak French. Really? said Polly, amazed. Nobody? I hid my exasperation. Polly, it's a fallacy. The generalization is reached too hastily. There are too few instances to support such a conclusion. Know any more fallacies? she asked breathlessly. This is more fun than dancing, even. I fought off a wave of despair. I was getting nowhere with this girl. Absolutely nowhere. "'Still I am nothing if persistent,' I continued. "'Next comes post-hoc. Listen to this. "'Let's not take Bill on our picnic. "'Every time we take him out with us, it rains.' "'I know somebody just like that,' she exclaimed. "'A girl back home? Eula Becker, her name is? "'It never fails. Every single time we take her on a picnic.' Polly, I said sharply. "'It's a fallacy. Eula Becker doesn't cause the rain. "'She has no connection with the rain. "'You are guilty of post-hoc if you blame Eula Becker.' "'I'll never do it again,' she promised, contritely. "'Are you mad at me?' I sighed. "'No, Polly, I'm not mad. "'Then tell me more fallacies. "'All right, let's try contradictory premises.' "'Yes, let's,' she chirped, blinking her eyes happily. "'I frowned, but plunged ahead. "'Here's an example of contradictory premises. "'If God can do anything, can he make a stone so heavy he won't be able to lift it?' "'Of course,' she replied promptly. "'But if he can do anything, he can lift the stone,' I pointed out. "'Yeah,' she said thoughtfully. "'Well, then I guess he can't make the stone.' "'But he can do anything,' I reminded her. "'She scratched her pretty empty head. "'I'm all confused,' she admitted. "'Of course you are. "'Because when the premises of an argument "'contradict each other, there can be no argument. "'If there is an irresistible force, "'there can be no immovable object. "'If there is an immovable object, "'there can be no irresistible force. "'Get it?' "'Tell me more of this keen stuff,' she said eagerly. "'I consulted my watch. "'I think we'd better call it a night. "'I'll take you home now.' "'and you go over all these things you've learned. "'We'll have another session tomorrow night.' "'I deposited her at the girl's dormitory, "'where she assured me that she had a perfectly terrific evening, "'and I went glumly home to my room. "'Petey lay snoring in his bed, "'the raccoon coat huddled like a great hairy beast at his feet. "'For a moment, I considered waking him "'and telling him that he could have his girl back. "'It seemed clear that my project was doomed to failure. "'The girl simply had a logic-proof head. "'But then I reconsidered. "'I had wasted one evening.' I might as well waste another. Who knew? Maybe somewhere in the extinct crater of her mind, a few members still smoldered. Maybe somehow I could fan them into a flame. Admittedly, it was not a prospect fraught with hope, but I decided to give it one more try. Seated under the oak the next evening, I said, Our first valetine tonight is called Ad Ad Misericordium. She quivered with delight. Listen closely, I said. A man applies for the job. When the boss asks him what his qualifications are, he replies that he has a wife and six children at home. The wife is a helpless cripple. The children have nothing to eat, no clothes to wear, no shoes on their feet, there are no beds in the house, no coal in the cellar, and the winter is coming. A tear rolled down each of Polly's pink cheeks. Oh, this is awful, awful, she sobbed. Yes, it's awful, I agreed, but it's no argument. The man never answered the boss's question about his qualifications. Instead, he appealed to the boss's sympathy. He committed the fallacies of as misericordian. Do you understand? Have you got a handkerchief, she blubbered. I handed her a handkerchief and tried to keep from screaming while she wiped her eyes. Next I said in a carefully controlled tone, we will discuss false analogy. Here is an example, students should be allowed to look at their textbooks during examinations. After all, surgeons have x-rays to guide them during an operation, lawyers have briefs to guide them during a trial, carpenters have blueprints to guide them when they are building a house. "'Why, then, shouldn't students be allowed "'to look at their textbooks during an examination?' "'There now,' she said enthusiastically, "'is the most Marvy idea I've heard in years.' Polly, I said testily, "'the argument is all wrong. "'Doctors, lawyers, and carpenters aren't testing, "'taking a test to see how much they have learned. "'But students are. The "'Situations are altogether different, "'and you can't make an analogy between them.' "'I still think it's a good idea,' said Polly. "'Nuts,' I muttered. Doggedly, I pressed on. "'Next we'll try hypothesis contrary to fact.' Sounds yummy, said was Polly's reaction. Listen, if Madame Curie had not happened to leave a, a photographic plate in a drawer with a chunk of pitch blend, the world today would not know about radium. True, true, said Polly, nodding her head. Did you see that movie? Oh, it, was just, it just knocked me out. That Walter Pigeon is so dreamy. I mean, he, he fractures me. If you can forget it... "'About Mr. Pigeon for a moment,' I said coldly. "'I would like to point out that the statement is a fallacy. "'Maybe Madame Curie would have discovered Radium at some later date. "'Maybe somebody else would have discovered it. "'Maybe any number of things would have happened. "'You can't start out with a hypothesis that is not true "'and then draw any supportable conclusion from it.' "'They ought to put Walter Pigeon in more pictures,' said Polly. "'I hardly ever see him anymore.' "'One more chance,' I decided. "'But just one more. "'There is a limit to what flesh and blood can bear.' The next fallacy is called poisoning the well How cute, she gurgled Two men are having a debate The first one gets up and says My opponent is a notorious liar You can't believe a word he is going to say Now Polly, think, think hard What's wrong? I watched her closely as she Knit her creamy brow in concentration Suddenly a glimmer of intelligence The first I had seen came into her eyes It's not fair, she said With indignation It's not a bit fair What chance has the second man got if the first man calls him alive before he even starts talking? Right, I cried exultantly. One hundred percent right. It's not fair. The first man has poisoned the well before anyone could drink from it. He he has hamstrung his opponent before he could even start. Polly, I'm proud of you. Pshaw, she murmured, blushing with pleasure. You see, my dear, these things aren't so hard. All you have to do is concentrate, think, examine, evaluate. Come on, let's review everything we have learned. Fire away, she said with an airy wave of her hand. Heartened by the knowledge that Polly was not altogether a Cretan, I began a long, patient review of all I have told her. Over and over again, I cited instances, pointing out flaws, kept hammering away without let up. It was like digging a tunnel. At first, everything was work, sweat, and darkness. I had no idea when I would reach the light, or even if I would— but i persisted i pounded and clawed and scraped and finally i was rewarded i saw a chunk of light and then the chink got bigger and the sun came pouring in and all was bright five grueling nights with this took but it was worth it i made a logician of polly i had taught her to think my job was done she was worthy of me at last she was a fit wife for me a proper hostess for many mansions a suitable mother for my well-heeled children it must not be thought that i was without love for this girl quite the contrary just as pygmalion loved the perfect woman he had fashioned so i love mine i decided to acquaint her with my feelings at our next meeting the time had come to change our relationship from academic to romantic polly i said when next we sat beneath our oak tonight we will not discuss fallacies ah gee she said disappointed my dear i said favoring her with a smile "'We have not now spent five evenings together. "'We have gotten along splendidly. "'It is clear that we are well-matched. "'Hasty generalization,' Polly said brightly. "'I beg your pardon?' said I. "'Hasty generalization,' she repeated. "'How can you say that we are well-matched "'on the basis of only five dates?' "'I chuckled with amusement. "'The dear child had learned her lessons well. "'My dear,' I said, patting her head in a tolerant manner. Five dates is plenty. "'After all, you don't have to eat a whole cake "'to know it is good.' False analogy, said Polly promptly. I'm not a cake. I'm a girl. I chuckled somewhat, less amused. The dear child had learned her lessons perhaps too well. I decided to change tactics. Obviously, the best approach was simple, strong, direct declaration of love. I paused for a moment while my massive brain chose the proper word. Then I began. "'Polly, I love you. "'You are the whole world to me, "'the moon, the stars, "'the constellations of outer space. "'Please, my darling, "'say that you will go steady with me, "'for if you will not, "'life will be meaningless. "'I will languish, "'I will refuse my meals, "'I will wander the face of the earth, "'a shambling, howl-eyed hulk.' "'There,' I thought, "'folding my arms, "'that ought to do it. "'Ad misericordium,' said Polly. "'Ground my teeth. "'I was not Pygmalion. "'I was Frankenstein, "'and my monster "'had me by the throat.' Frantically, I fought back the tide of panic surging through me. At all costs, I had to keep cool. Well, Polly, I said, forcing a smile, you certainly have learned your fallacies. You're darn right, she said with a vigorous nod. And who taught them to you, Polly? You did. That's right. So you do owe me something, don't you, my dear? If I hadn't come along, you would have never learned about fallacies. Hypothesis contrary to fact, she said instantly. Dashed per- perspiration from my brow Polly, I croaked You mustn't take all these things so literally I meant this is just classroom stuff You know, the things that you learn in school You don't have to do it with life Dicto simpliciter, she said Wagging her fi- finger at me playfully That did it I leaped to my feet, bellying like a bull Will you or will you not go study with me? I will not, she replied Why not, I demanded Because this afternoon I promised P. D. Bellas I would go study with him I reeled back, overcome with infamy of it "'After he promised, after he made a deal, after he shook my hand. "'That rat!' I shrieked, kicking up chunks of turf. "'You can't go with him, Polly. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a rat!' "'Poisoning the well,' said Polly. "'And stop shouting. I think shouting must be a fallacy, too.' "'With an immense effort of will, I modulated my voice. "'All right,' I said. "'You're a logician. "'Now look at this thing logically. "'How could you choose P.D. Bellows over me? "'Look at me. A brilliant student. A tremendous intellect. "'A man with an assured future.' Look at Petey, a knothead, a jitterbug, a guy who never knew where his next meal is coming from. Can you give me one logical reason why you should go study with Petey Bellows? I certainly can, declared Polly. He's got a raccoon coat. Well, that's the end of the story. And... I read all the way through it and inserted a few interjections in between, but I tell you, I wanted to get to the end for those of you very mad at the narrator himself and, and wondering how, how could somebody have written this and somebody could have made the choice of, of, of having that sort of arrogance for the main character. And the funny thing is, is that it turns around to him. And I know I've mentioned this story uh, in a few other podcasts, so I wanted to bring it in here so that, that you, can, you can see the, the humor in the whole situation. There are many fallacies in, in, uh, in life itself, and it's up to us what, what we do with them. As writers, we have an obligation to not engage in some of the fallacies uh, encountered within this short story and he, you know we have choices we have choices to make and sometimes it's it's very easy for us to engage in some of the uh, the paths that uh, that uh, the narrator here points out uh, but the only one that's going to catch it before anyone is impacted is us and just as the narrator should have caught his own uh, fallacies before Polly if he was that brilliant that smart that much of a, of an intellect, he would have he, he would have caught the, the reasoning uh, prior to uh, prior to Polly pointing it out to him. Uh, the The last piece is the last twist that uh, that we see in this story, and that last twist is is exactly what started this whole process, and it's the raccoon coat. So Max Schillman uh, really ties together. Uh, the beginning and the end, just as we heard in the in the poem by Stafford. Uh, Max Shulman does the same thing, where he starts off with one premise and makes sure he carries it all the way through to the end about how the big men on campus have it and what the impact of that is. The featured ri- short story writing prompt for the week is, is to put this story in modern terms and maybe only choose one or two fallacies, but see... Uh, draw parallels and see where your story leads you. Uh, make sure it is a short story. If you'd like to turn it into to a longer one or a vignette, a, a novel even, to where it's leading up to a bigger conclusion, do so. But but make sure that that you're connecting the dots for the reader from beginning to end and tying together uh, the pieces that you present uh, within uh, within the narrative and within the dialogue each character shares. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Story Institute's Ramly Verser. And since I rambled on so long, we're going to forego the the other short story and poetry uh, writing prompts from the site this week. Uh, but if you have any questions, feel free to contact us at 615 431 RIT, That's 431-9748. Or send us an email to ramblingverser at storyinstitute.com. Or uh, uh, give us a review on iTunes if if you like the series that we have going so far. We hope to see you again here next week when we'll have new poetry topics, short stories, topics, and writing prompts. In the meantime, remember to imagine, enhance, and grow your stories.